not quite 500 years ago, actually it was in the year 1521, that Emperor Charles V demanded that a man by the name of Martin Luther appear before a diet, which is another word for a conference, of the Holy Roman Empire at Worms. Now, I've got to tell you that growing up as a kid, when I heard that Luther had to come to the diet at Worms, I thought, I wouldn't go there either. Now, if it had been a diet of barbecue, that would have been another thing. But this is a conference held at Worms in Germany. Luther was called on the carpet and was asked to explain his views. And when he was done, Emperor Charles V ordered him to recant. In other words, back off. Well, Luther refused. And if you've ever seen that great Luther movie, you've probably heard those words where Luther says, I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. Well, what did that get Luther? Well, he was declared to be an outlaw. A price was put on his head, and as he very quickly ran out of town, he was captured by a bunch of people who were on his side, and they hauled him off, and he was hidden away in a castle in Wartburg where he translated the Bible into the German language. Now, before we kind of get further into the Bible, I want to talk a little bit more about Luther, and I want to share with you five things I think Luther's life teaches us. And this will ultimately get into why the Bible is so important. Here's the very first thing that I think Luther's life teaches us. It's this, that great men of God don't seek fame. It finds them. See, Luther merely began to teach what the Bible said. Now, I've got to tell you something. When he started teaching exactly what the Bible said, this was something new. This wasn't just doing what everybody else did, because up to this time, people really didn't know their Bible. And so they were stuck with listening to people telling them what tradition meant or what the church meant. And so when Luther came, he spoke the word of God. His fame was the result of God's Holy Spirit giving some unction or power to his words and his unwavering commitment to God's truth is found in the Bible over tradition. Here's the second thing I think about Luther. Luther's life shows us that we may be called to go against all the powers and the impressive people of this world to follow Jesus. See, Luther was not the first, nor will he be the last to be attacked for his faith. See, we can learn from Martin Luther and be sure what we are following is the Jesus of the Bible and not just some weird, aberrant view that a lot of people in this world have concocted. I'll just give you a minor little example. A number of years ago, I was contacted by one of our local congressmen, and I was invited to come to the state capitol and offer the opening invocation, the opening prayer, to open up the session for that year. He told me it would be really good for me to be there. I'd get a chance to meet with certain people, and it would be good for our church, and blah, 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 blah. Well, I'd go back to what Luther learned first. You know, great men don't seek fame, it finds them. Um, I didn't really care much about that, but I was happy to drive to Springfield and do that. But about two weeks before I went, I got a letter telling me what I could say 
and what I could pray and what I was not to say and what I was not to pray, to which I said, find somebody else. There's no way I would go to open up a prayer, I don't open up anything with a prayer, and not do it in the name of Jesus. There's no way that I would pray and not call upon God our loving Father, or ask that our sins not be forgiven, or that God's grace and love and mercy be extended to people, that people would be imbued with godly wisdom or godly discernment. I just said, thanks, but no thanks. Guess what? I got another letter back that told me it would be better if I would just kind of, it wasn't quite their words, but knuckle under and get with the drill. I'm not even going to tell you what I wrote back. (laughs) Something close to this. I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. Just that simple. Well, there's a third thing I think Luther teaches us is connected to the word. Our freedom to worship as Christians should never be taken for granted. Good men and good women died and suffered on account of God's word in order for us to be free to worship God as we believe he desires to be worshipped. There's another thing we learn from Luther. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to walk the talk, to spell out the truth biblically and love those with whom we disagree. And guess what? We will disagree from time to time over what the scriptures have to say. I'm going to point out one such difference this morning, a little bit later, between a group of people that we call Lutherans. And guess what? Not all Lutherans believe the same thing about the Bible. And I can guarantee you that next week when we talk about baptism, There's a broad difference between what people teach and believe and confess about it. And Lord, suffer the same thing. But while we have those differences over the scripture, that does not excuse us to be rude, that does not excuse us to be holier than thou, it says that we can agree to disagree, but we need to take our stand not on what we think or feel, but on what we truly believe what we truly teach, and what we truly confess. Something else Luther's life teaches is that Christian greatness is never void of personal devotion. See, Luther followed Jesus Christ. Luther submitted to the will of Jesus. He was far more than just some sort of a great personality. Luther was a man who loved Jesus. And Luther, in many ways, became a living legend, even in his own day. And the common people who were freed from the oppression of the powers that were, that were and, and brought into the gospel of grace. Now, Luther's great work of the Reformation can be summed up in these words. Let me read this to you. It said, Martin Luther restored the message of the Christian church in its original truth and purity. The Holy Bible was restored to the reading of all men as a norm and rule for doctrine through God's inspired word and not through any visible organization. Now, I'm going to just stop there and tell you that up to that time, it was said that while the Bible was good, the Roman Catholic Church had the final say. And Luther said, hold it. 
men are wrong from time to time. The word of God is never wrong. It goes on, it says, Man is justified and saved by the grace of God alone and not by works of his own or the saints. Jesus Christ alone has earned this for us. By his merits, this gift of God has justified all men irrespective of their works. This justification comes to the individual man through faith alone, through trust in the Savior alone, not by his merits and by Scripture alone. Now, today, to us who call ourselves Lutheran Christians, that doesn't sound very outlandish. But understand, back in the 1500s, when the church called all the shots and not God's word, when good works were the norm as opposed to grace and faith, in the days when people like John Tetzel were out on the street selling indulgences in order, in other words, a kind of a free, you know, you can buy um, a certificate that allowed you to basically go ahead and sin. This was a pretty outlandish message. Well, today as we begin a series of messages that I'm going to call Believe, Teach, and Confess, and in this series, we really want to explore what Lutheran Christians stand for. It could be said, as Martin Luther said, that what we stand for is simply this. It is the solas, and you'll see them on the screen. Sola fide. We stand for faith alone. Nothing else. Faith alone. Sola fide. We stand for sola gracia. Faith alone, grace alone. But the one we're going to focus our attention on today, really, and guess what? The other two really flow out of this one, because if we don't have sola scriptura, if we don't have by Scripture alone or by Bible alone, we will have confused faith alone and grace alone. Now, I've got to tell you, if you take those three simple things, each of those manifests itself in a variety of doctrines, a variety of beliefs, a variety of core values. That's why in these next couple of weeks, we're going to explore the Bible. We're going to dig a little deeper into baptism. And I could stop there because quite often when people call me and they ask, uh, will you baptize my child? I always ask this terrible question. Why? That's a terrible question to ask anybody. And, and sometimes they, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be so blunt, but every, I every once in a while just out of my desire to be like John Folks. <laughs> whatever I ask that question why and it's sometimes there's this pregnant pause and and I say well okay let me give you a couple of reasons not to have your child baptized reason number one not to get your child baptized is to get grandma off your back and guess what there's a lot of people that's why they have their babies but well because grandma's nagging them or reason number two maybe not to get your child baptized would be aren't we supposed to it's a little bit deeper than that Let's see what the Bible has to say about that, about the Lord's Supper, and much, much more. See, Martin Luther's insight that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, cannot be divorced from Scripture alone. It was directly as a result of that commitment that Luther came to rediscover justification by grace alone, through faith alone. 
Now, together with all of his contemporaries, way back, I say nearly 500 years ago, Luther held that the Bible is truly the Word of God, that the Word of God does not mislead us in any way, it doesn't deceive us in any way, but unlike his opponents in the Roman Catholic Church, Luther rejected the notion that an infallible leader of the church is necessary for the right interpretation of the Bible. I could put it in a modern context and say, folks, if you've got a Bible, let Scripture interpret Scripture. I am not the last say in what this means. Now, granted, I've studied a little bit. Lynn mentioned this morning that he'd read one section of Scripture, what you say, Lynn, 500 times? He may be an authority on Matthew 13, but Lynn is not the final say. The Word of God is the final say say. And Luther says, I'm sorry, but the Pope is not the final say. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. See, Scripture alone, Luther said, is infallible. The institutional church, I don't care whether it's the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, or whether they're Baptists or Methodists or whatever, all of their councils, all the people you elect, as well as all teachers, and you could start from the top to the bottom, can and do make mistakes. Let me quote Luther on this. Scripture will not lie to you. That's pretty straightforward, huh? Human beings can make mistakes, but Scripture will not lie to you. Now, the denomination to which most of us here belong, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, believes that Scripture alone not scripture plus tradition, not scripture plus the church, not scripture plus human reason, not scripture plus experience, but scripture alone stands as the final standard of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. But at the same time, we also believe that confidence in the reliability of the Holy Scriptures is not, par, uh, is not possible apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Christians believe what the Bible teaches because they first believe in who Jesus Christ is. See, in the end, Christ is the object of our faith. That's why I say we are called not to be Biblians. What are we called to be? We're called to be Christians, Christians. The Bible, though, would remain a very dark book if you separated it from faith in Christ because Jesus Christ is the true content of the entirety of this thing we call the Bible. When sinners are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, what does Christ do? He immediately points them back to the writings of the prophets and the apostles as the sole authoritative source for all the Bible believes Teach, or what the church believes, teaches, and confesses. See, the key to understanding Scripture properly, we believe, is the careful distinction between law and gospel. Now, many of us were raised to think that the Old Testament part of our Bible was all law. Don't do this, don't do that. And the New Testament is just all about Jesus. You know, I love you, we, you love me. Kind of a Barney kind of a gospel. When in reality, the law and the gospel flow all the way through the scriptures. We know that the law, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, tells us what God 
demands of sinners in order to be saved. When I went through grade school, Lutheran grade school, St. John's in Seward, Nebraska, I remember a teacher writing SOS up on the blackboard. And he said, you know, the law, SOS, does what? Shows our sins. But he said the gospel is an SOS too because it shows our what? Savior. That's one way to think about it. The gospel reveals what God has already done for our salvation. So the law shows us our sins, the need for a Savior, the good news, the gospel offers the free gift of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. See, the whole Bible can kind of be separated into those two parts. And guess what? If you, if you want to really study the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there's some wonderful books on the proper distinction between the law and the gospel. But there's always that balance. It's the proper distinction between law and gospel that the purity of the gospel is preserved in these three solas, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, are united. Now, I don't know if I'm telling you anything new here, but while all Lutheran churches, and for that fact, all Christian churches, profess allegiance to Scripture alone, we do not all agree on what it means in practice. Let me give you an example. And I, I, I'm going to step aside just for a minute. I want to say this. I am not saying some of this is wanting to pick on different denominations. That's not my, that's not my worry at all. I just want to tell you what we believe, teach, and confess. You know, when I teach down at the prison, when I taught through the book of Revelation, I said, we're going to get to things like the rapture, and we're going to get to things like the millennium. I'm going to, as long as we all agree on it, I'm just going to keep going. But any time we have a disagreement, I'm going to at least point it out and tell you why we believe this to be true. Okay, so I'm not picking on Baptists, not picking on Catholics, not picking on Methodists, not even picking on Lutherans. Okay, got that? Okay, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. That's the denomination to which we belong. Believes that scripture alone is comprised when the inerrancy of the Bible is denied. It endangers both grace alone and through faith alone. Now, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America Another branch of Lutheranism, in fact, it's the largest branch of Lutheranism, LCMS is number two, they will affirm Scripture alone, but they do not necessarily believe that Scripture is without error in matters of history and science. That opens the door for some larger disagreements between Lutherans. So I want to get to the point of what it is we really teach, believe, and confess. Go, here's the first one. Take a look at this, because this is a mouthful. I could preach on this for a week. We believe, teach, and confess that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the infallible. Now, I'm going to stop. Anybody know what infallible means? What does it mean? With, without error. It can't be wrong. The infallible Word of God... Verbally inspired. What does it mean to inspire? Anybody know? Like an artificial inspiring, artificial inspiration? To be breathed into. It was verbally breathed into by God without error 
in the original manuscripts. Now, we could even go a step further and say, man, this thing has been translated so many times, but what has God seen to it happen? That it stays the same. Infallible, it is inerrant. Go to the next screen. Here's the other thing that we teach, believe, teach, and confess. We believe, teach, and confess that God's intentions, in other words, what God wanted known, revealed in the Bible, are the supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. It matters in matters not addressed by the Bible. What is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And if you only had those two paragraphs today, <laughs> that's the whole sum substance of my message. This is what we believe, teach, and confess. Now, oh, man, I had so much stuff. I could, I could preach about 20 or 30 sermons on this. In fact, I almost changed last night and almost changed again this morning. There's just so much to talk about because God's Word is, you know, like this wonderful little diamond rotating in the sun. Everywhere you look at it, it's something cool. But with all what I've said so far, I want to turn back to this text that Kevin shared with us before. In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy through chapter 4, my aim is just to take a few minutes yet today and to stir you up to love this Word of God, this infallible, this inspired, this inerrant book, to love the Word of God more and to set your face firmly to make a commitment to read it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, and to put it into action. Now, there's a lot that we could benefit from in this text. I can tell you three different sermons I thought about preaching. Here's the first one. You know, chapter 4, I could have gone to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We could have talked about the enormous seriousness of preaching the Word. Have you ever had an opportunity to share the Word of God with someone and you didn't take that opportunity that might have been the only time that person ever heard the word of god we could talk about the and we're going to get to that when we talk about missions and evangelism but the the seriousness of just sharing the word of god with people we could talk about the dangers of preaching to please itching ears of unspiritual people did you catch that before when Kevin read it? There are a lot of people who want to gather a whole bunch of teachers around to tell them what makes them feel good. Feel good theology. That's what I always call the Barney theology. You know, the I love you, you love me, we're one great big... And believe me, there are people who don't want to hear certain things. I remember the day when I had preached on Life Sunday. I talked about abortion, right to life, end of life issues. And a woman stopped me at the door and she says, Pastor, that was a wonderful message. Everybody here needed to hear that. But you're never going to preach about gambling, are you? And I said, why not? She says, because quite honest, my, honest, my husband and I enjoy it. And when we win, so does the church. For some reason, I felt like somebody just put a gun to my head. What do you think I preached about next Sunday? <laughs> or we could talk about the amazing wonder and blessing that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Man, that's cool, too, that, that what we have here is, is God's Word. 
God breathed it. You know, we have 40 different people who wrote this Bible on three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, and it's consistent. Can you imagine getting 40 different authors today and tell them all to write about a certain subject? And You suppose it would all be the same? I don't think so. Put them on three different continents. They would all be different. Spread them over 1,500 years. This is, it is so amazing. Why? Because it's God's word. But what I want to focus in on are two other little verses. I want to focus in on the wonderfully sufficient power of the word of God to equip us to do every good work. In verses 16 and 17 of our text, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable and it's profitable all kinds of stuff teaching reproof correction training in righteousness why so that the man of God the woman of God the child of God may be competent and he says and equipped for every good work now I don't know if you, you kind of grasp what God's word is saying to you it says, it says that every good thing that God expects you to do the Bible equips you to do it i'm going to give you a personal little example because I, I i don't know i know that i should pray for other people i know that i should witness to god to other people but sometimes when the opportunity presents itself i just as soon excuse myself this morning when i got up i'm kind of tired of eating oatmeal every morning I know it's good for me, and I just, I just had to go to McDonald's. <laughs> so I was going through the drive-thru this morning, and I was going to order a, a mocha latte and an egg McMuffin. I went through the drive-thru, and it started with me not being able to understand the woman in the squawk box. And it was pretty apparent she didn't understand me either. It's like we were speaking two different languages. Well, I gotta, I'll be honest with you, the steam wasn't quite rising, but I was having the beginnings of a not-too-good day. You know, that little box to tell you how much you owe? I know I did not order $13 and some odd cents <coughs> worth of latte and uh, egg McMuffin, <clears throat> and she finally got it right. And, like, and I pulled up to the where-you-pay window, I fished out my money and I gave it to her. <clears throat> and I don't remember that I got a thank you. And I just grumped forward to the pick it up window. And when I got to the pick it up window, this nice older lady looked out and she says, my, don't you all look good. She says, you must be going to church. Here's my really dopey reply. I said, yeah, because if I don't show up, they might not have church. <laughs> not my best effort. <laughs> she says, y'all a preacher? I said, yeah, I am. She said, would you pray for me because I don't always get to go to church because I have to work. <clears throat> and I, you know, here's my immediate response. Oh, sure, I'd be happy to preach for you. Give me my stuff. I got to get out of here because I got church to do. Now, what does the Bible says? He equips us 
to do good that he expects of us. It was at that moment that the Holy Spirit nudged me and said, you have an opportunity to pray for someone who has asked you to pray. And I said, there's no cars behind me. How about if I pray for you right now? She didn't say anything to me. You know what she did? She turned around and she said to the people inside, the preacher here is willing to pray for us. And immediately, I've got five or six people in the window <laughs> expecting me to pray for them. Now, I prayed for them. In fact, I asked them, I said, is there anything particular? Somebody asked me to pray about a sick child. And I, I, I didn't pray long, but I prayed for them. Now, the interesting thing is, as I was driving away, and after they said thank you, I thought to myself, I didn't even tell them where I was the preacher at. And guess what? They didn't even ask. But I'm not so sure that that really matters. I think the fact is that the scriptures tell us that we need to begin loving one another. It says to begin with what? The household of faith. And these happen to be five or six Christian people. I'm, I'm making that assumption who saw someone who was a preacher, viewed them as somebody who prays, and he took the time to pray for them. Now, in that convoluted little story I told you, understand we were dealing with sin on my part, allowing myself to be grumpy. Somebody that God put into my life who said, jolly up, big boy. And the spirit who said, you have the opportunity to do what I've asked you to do, and I will give you what you need to accomplish that. Now, the question is, how does the Bible equip us for every good work? Well, it's not by supplying specific lists that cover all possible situations. I have never found the Bible where it says what to do if somebody asks you to pray through a drive through window at McDonald's. I mean, thinking that way, that there should be a list for everything, would be a mistake in at least two ways. It would be a mistake uh, because there are hundreds of specific situations we are in that the Bible does not specifically address. When the Bible was written, guess what? There were no televisions or computers or cars or phones or birth control pills or Prozac or genetic engineering or respirators, bullets, or bombs in the days of Jesus. The Bible does not equip us for every good deed by telling us specifically what to do in every specific situation. There's another reason it would be a mistake to think that way because it would lead us into legalism, kind of doing things in hope that our performance would somehow win approval. But that's not Christian morality either. Good works are done from a heart that what? Treasures God. Good works are done from a heart that, that treasures his help. It comes from a heart that loves to display the glory of Jesus. Otherwise, those good works are no good, no matter how they conform to some external expectation. That's why I have these two verses up there, Romans 14. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or Romans 7, 4, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that 
you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. See, bearing fruit in every good work, as Colossians 1 verse 10 says, means that it comes out of the branches in your life naturally from something that is changed inside. Now, what is changed is that you are dead to the law as a set of constraints from the outside, and you're united with Christ in the relationship of joyful trust so that when he speaks, even though some of it comes out of the law, it comes from within as a desire of your heart. So if you're going to ask me, again, how the scripture equips us for every good work, I think I actually put the answer down uh, in your outline. I think it may have, there it is on the screen. The Bible, this is how it works. The Bible, this wonderful word of God, daily. Now that implies that you're in it. And the sad thing is that almost 60 to 70% of all people who attend church only hear the word of God or read the word of God on a Sunday morning. That's like trying to do things without the owner's manual. Any of you have ever tried to put a bicycle together and said, don't need the instructions? Doesn't work too well. The Bible daily reveals to us the greatness and the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the mercy of all that God is for us in Christ so that by the power of the Spirit we can find joy in Him and the ways of sin become distasteful. Indeed, ugly and repugnant. That's how we are equipped for every good work. Yeah, the Bible's got some specific pointers on how to live. No doubt about it. Ten Commandments, for example. But most deeply, the Bible equips us for every good work by what we find, by changing what we find satisfaction in so that our obedience comes from within freely, not by coercion from without. And it does this when we daily immerse ourselves and read it and memorize it and meditate on it and put it into practice. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture, by the Bible alone. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. What a powerful instrument it is. We think about the law and the gospel. We think about the wonderful book that not only cuts but heals at the same time. The word that opens up our understanding of what it means about Jesus. Faith alone, grace alone. We thank you for that wonderful gift. In Jesus' name, amen.